0: chapter 4 part 1 of 20 years of the republic 1885 to 1905 by harry thurston peck this librivox recording is in the public domain the republican rally part 1 The year 1886 was marked by serious disturbances arising from strikes and other labor movements, which recalled the events of 1877, when the industries of the country were paralyzed and when, at the great centers of traffic in twelve states, conditions existed that seemed to threaten civil war. In 1886 there was less violence, yet the social unrest was so widespread as to be at once significant and ominous. From the shipyards in Maine to the railways in Texas and the Far West, there was continual disorder in nearly every branch of industry. In New York City, the employees of the streetcar lines began a strike on February 3rd, which was ended on the 18th by a victory for the strikers. The disturbances, however, broke out again on March 2nd and continued intermittently until September 1st, when the managers of the roads once more gave way. On one day, every line in New York and Brooklyn was tied up completely. In June, the elevated railways had a similar, though much more brief, experience. The mania for striking seemed to be in the very air and on April twentieth in Boston, even the children in two of the public schools struck for a continuous session and adopted all the approved methods of the conventional strike, stationing pickets, attacking such children as refused to join them, and causing a small riot which had to be put down by the police. Note 1, page 127. The storm centers of labor agitation were in St. Louis and Chicago, In St. Louis, a demand was made by the employees of the Texas-Pacific Railway for the reinstatement of a foreman who had been discharged. The receiver refused the demand, and a strike took place which very soon extended to the Missouri-Pacific, and, in fact, to all the roads constituting the Gould system. Traffic throughout the whole southwest was practically suspended, and, before long, the strike took on the form of riot and incendiarism. United States troops were sent to maintain order, Note two, page one twenty eight. But their numbers were insufficient, and the rioters cared nothing for the special deputies who had been sworn in to keep the peace. A squad of these deputies fired upon a crowd, killing or wounding a number of persons, April seventh. This act inflamed the mob, which armed itself and for a time was master of the city. The torch was applied to railroad property, factories were closed, and great losses were inflicted, not only upon the railways, but upon the entire population. The leader in these depredations was a Scotchman named Martin Irons, a typical specimen of the ignorant fanatic, exactly the sort of man who comes to the front whenever the populace is inflamed by passion and bent on violence. Sly, ignorant, and half an animal, he nevertheless was able to play upon the prejudices of his fellows, and to stimulate their class hatred so artfully as to make them deaf to the counsels of their saner leaders. For a time he had his way. Yet in the end, this strike collapsed after those who shared in it had forfeited hundreds of thousands of dollars in wages, and after the railroads had incurred an even heavier loss. In Chicago, the men in the Pullman works began a strike in May, and before long nearly 50,000 laborers were out. In a conflict with the police, a number of workingmen were shot. Chicago had, for some time, been the headquarters of a small but very active group of anarchists, nearly all of whom were foreigners. The strikers had no sympathy with anarchists nor any affiliation with them. Nevertheless, the anarchists believed that the proper moment had now come for them to strike a blow, and they hoped thereby to win to their support new followers from the ranks of the discontented. There were published in Chicago two newspapers, one in English, The Alarm, conducted by a man named Parsons, and the other in German, the Zeitung, conducted by one August spies, both of them devoted to the anarchistic propaganda. ABOUT THE TIME WHEN THE STRIKE BEGAN, THERE APPEARED IN THE ALARM A MOST INFLAMMATORY ARTICLE OF WHICH THE FOLLOWING IS A PART. DYNAMITE. OF ALL THE GOOD STUFF, THIS IS THE STUFF. STUFF SEVERAL POUNDS OF THIS SUBLIME STUFF INTO AN INCH PIPE, PLUG UP BOTH ENDS, INSERT A CAP WITH A fuse ATTACHED, PLACE THIS IN THE IMMEDIATE NEIGHBORHOOD OF A LOT OF RICH LOAFERS WHO LIVE BY THE SWEAT OF OTHER PEOPLE'S BROWS, AND LIGHT THE fuse. THE DEAR STUFF CAN BE CARRIED AROUND IN THE POCKET WITHOUT DANGER, while it is a formidable weapon against any force of militia, police, or detectives that may want to stifle the cry for justice that goes forth from the plundered slaves. On May 4th, a mass meeting of workingmen was held in the Haymarket Square to protest against the acts of the police. Late at night, after some rather tame addresses had been delivered, an anarchist leader, an Englishman named Samuel Fielden, broke forth into a violent harangue. He denounced all government in the most savage terms, yelling out, the law is your enemy, we are rebels against it! Word had been sent to police headquarters, and while Fielden was in the midst of his wild talk, a battalion of nearly two hundred policemen marched into the square. Their captain commanded the gathering to disperse. Fielden replied, "We are peaceable!" He was, however, arrested. A moment later a pistol was fired, apparently as a signal, and at once a bomb was hurled into the ranks of the police it exploded with terrible effect. Nearly fifty policemen were thrown to the ground, and seven of them were so badly wounded that they died soon after. With splendid discipline, the ranks were at once closed up, and a charge was made upon the mob which scattered hastily in flight. Of the anarchists arrested for this outrage, seven were sentenced to death by Judge Gary. Of these seven, four, Engel, Spies, Parsons, and Fisher, were hanged. One, Ling, committed suicide and two, Schwab and Fielden, had their sentences commuted to imprisonment for life. Eight years afterward, a governor of Illinois, Mr. John P. Atgeld, moved partly by the appeals of sentimentalists, and partly by his own instinctive sympathy with lawlessness, gave a free pardon to such anarchists as had been imprisoned. In June 1886, in New York, the disturbed conditions were reflected in political agitation, though here also the anarchists showed their heads. They were, however, dealt with before they could do mischief. One of their leaders, named Johann Most, and three of his companions were imprisoned on the charge of inciting to riot. Most was a foul creature, at once murderous and cowardly. When arrested, he was found hiding under the bed of his mistress and was taken away whimpering in abject terror. With him and with his kind, the workingmen of New York had no affinity, but sought to redress their grievances at the polls. In this year, Mr. Henry George, note 3, page 131, was nominated as the Labour candidate for the mayoralty of New York City against Mr. A.S. Hewitt, the Democratic candidate, and Mr. Theodore Roosevelt, the candidate of the Republicans. Although Mr. Hewitt was elected, it was only by a plurality. He received some 90,000 votes against 68,000 votes given to Mr. George, while Mr. Roosevelt stood at the bottom of the poll with a little more than 60,000 votes. Wherever throughout the country the labor element had shown its discontent, the name of the Knights of Labor was, in one way or another, pretty certain to be heard. This organization was one whose origin and evolution are of great significance in the social and economic history of the United States. Prior to eighteen sixty six, such organizations of workingmen as existed were either societies for general purposes, not necessarily connected with labor questions, or else they were trade unions in the narrowest sense, confining their membership to men and women engaged in particular and special industries. In eighteen sixty six, however, there was formed the National Labor Union, of which the purpose was to promote the solidarity, not only of skilled workmen, but of the masses in general, with a view to the amelioration of their condition. This body, unfortunately, almost from the first, fell into the hands of politicians, and in 1870 it died a natural death. Its aims, however, were adopted by a number of garment-cutters in Philadelphia in 1869, who at first formed a secret order, secrecy being adopted because of the hostility of employers to labor organizations. This was the origin of the Knights of Labour, who admitted to membership in their body all persons above the age of sixteen, except saloon-keepers, gamblers, bankers, and lawyers. In 1882, it ceased to be a secret order, and thereafter it rapidly increased in membership until in 1886 it was said to number more than 700,000 persons. The principles which the order officially professed were distinctly socialistic. It advocated equal rights for women, the common ownership of land, and the acquisition by the government of public utilities such as railroads, telegraphs, and telephones. It is here that we first find in the United States a large and influential body of men pledged to the support of what was in reality a system of state socialism. Note 4, page 132. In order to understand the significance of this movement and to explain the rapid propagation of socialistic principles, it is necessary to recall a few important facts relating to American economic history of the preceding thirty years. One effect of the Civil War had been the rapid acquisition of great fortunes by individuals and the growth of powerful corporations. Conspicuous among the latter were the railway companies. The period succeeding the war had been a period of railway building. Between 1860 and 1880, more than 60,000 miles of railway had been constructed and put into operation. They represented an enormous amount of capital, and this capital represented an enormous amount of influence, both political and social. How much the nation owed to its railway system was very obvious. The easy distribution of its products brought prosperity to every section. Population was extended over new areas great cities sprang up in the remotest prairies at the magic touch of the railway builder moreover in one sense the unity of the republic itself was the work of the railway which proved to be a great assimilator annihilating distance bringing one section into easy communication with another and thereby creating not only common interests but a common understanding On the other hand, a moment's thought will make it clear that railways were essentially monopolies, and that their growth lodged in the hands of their owners the right to tax at will the people from whom they had received their charters, and whose interests they were supposed to serve. In 1870, when there were only 53,000 miles of railroad in the United States, the revenue collected by the railway companies from the public amounted to $450 million, representing a transportation tax which the owners of the roads imposed at their own discretion and without the intervention or consent of any other authority. At that time, Mr. Charles Francis Adams wrote, Certain private individuals, responsible to no authority and subject to no supervision, but looking solely to their own interests or to those of their immediate constituency, yearly levy upon the internal movement of the American people a tax. Equal to about one-half of the expenses of the United States government, army, navy, civil list and interest upon the national debt included. Note 5, page 133. Even if the individuals to whom this irresponsible power was entrusted had been always wise, unselfish and public-spirited, the unregulated right of taxation would have been an anomaly in a free state. But as they were very human, serving their own interests, and naturally seeking their own enrichment, abuses and very gross ones were inevitable. Still, no hostile sentiment would have been aroused against them had they levied their transportation tax equitably upon all and without discrimination. That they did not do so, and that in consequence they began, about eighteen seventy, to create and foster other still more gigantic combinations inimical to the public welfare, are facts which serve to explain the prevalence throughout the country of great social discontent, beginning in eighteen seventy, and growing deeper and more intense with each succeeding year. An instance, the most striking of all instances, of an abuse of corporate power by the railways is found in the history of the Standard Oil Company. In 1862, a partnership for the refining of petroleum was formed between John D. Rockefeller, his brother William Rockefeller, and an English mechanic named Samuel Andrews. This partnership grew into a corporation which, after 1870, became known to the country as the Standard Oil Company. From 1860 to 1868, the oil wells in Pennsylvania and West Virginia had enriched the people of several states and had added very largely to the wealth of the entire country. By the year 1870, the production of oil had increased to such an extent that the United States exported to Europe not less than 100 million gallons a year. A hundred new wells were drilled every month. The people of the oil region had in ten years created a new industry at the cost of patience, self-sacrifice and labor, supplemented by invention. New cities and towns had sprung up, humming with life and full of hope and confidence in the future. Churches, schools, libraries, banks, and all the machinery of prosperity had been established, and these were supported by the oil wells and refineries. Presently, in some mysterious way, all this activity was checked. It was found that certain shippers of oil were obtaining from the railroads rates so low as to enable them, by underselling other oil producers to drive their competitors out of business. These favoured shippers turned out to be a body of thirteen men, among whom were the two Rockefellers, Note 6, page 135, who were thus gaining a complete monopoly of the oil business. They were united in what was known as the South Improvement Company, and with the South Improvement Company the oil-carrying railroads, Note 7, page 135, made a secret contract which provided, one, that the freight rates should be doubled to all other shippers, two, that the increase collected from competing shippers should be turned over to the South Improvement Company, three, that any other changes in the freight tariff necessary to crush out competition should be made, and four, that the railroads should inform the South Improvement Company of all the details of its rivals' business. The result, of course, was the ruin of the oil producers. They were faced with the alternative of selling out to the South Improvement Company at a merely nominal figure or else of giving up their business altogether. Some of them went to the officials of the Erie and the New York Central Roads in order to expostulate. They were told, You had better sell out. There is no help for it. Many did sell out to the oil monopolists at fifty cents on the dollar. One refinery, which produced annually an average profit of $40,000 and which represented an investment of 150000 was abandoned to the monopoly for the sum of $45,000. The owner, Mr. Robert Hanna, said, I would not have sold out if I could have got a fair show with the railroads. Note 8. Page 136. The blow fell alike upon producer and refiner. Within two days after the secret contract went into effect, the prosperity of the oil region was at an end. The entire business of the oil regions became paralyzed. Oil went down to a point seventy cents below the cost of production. The boring of new wells is suspended. Existing wells are shut down. The business in Cleveland has stopped almost altogether. Thousands of men are thrown out of work. Note 9, page 136. The annals of this time show a black record of ruin, despair, and suicide. Naturally, so great a wrong was not accepted with meekness. The law was tested in a great number of suits, some of them brought by individuals, and some of them technically in the name of the state of Pennsylvania. Indictments against the Rockefellers for criminal conspiracy were found by a grand jury, but with no result. The state officials seemed strangely unwilling to push these cases, Officers of the law became of a sudden wonderfully listless. Governor Hoyt of Pennsylvania refused to issue an order for the extradition of the Rockefellers. The highest court in Pennsylvania interfered to stay proceedings in the lower courts. The oil monopolists boasted with cool confidence that the case against them would never come to trial. Law having failed, a political agitation was begun, accompanied by outbreaks of disorder. Railway tracks were torn up. Oil tanks were destroyed. Popular sentiment justified an appeal to physical force against trickery and fraud. This state of things led to the calling of a constitutional convention in 1873. A very able lawyer, Mr. Samuel C. T. Dodd, addressing this convention, used the following forcible language. IN SPITE OF THE LAW WE WELL KNOW THAT ALMOST EVERY RAILROAD IN THIS STATE IS TODAY IN THE HABIT OF GRANTING SPECIAL PRIVILEGES TO INDIVIDUALS, TO COMPANIES IN WHICH THE DIRECTORS OF SUCH RAILROADS ARE INTERESTED, TO PARTICULAR BUSINESSES, AND TO PARTICULAR LOCALITIES. WE WELL KNOW THAT IT IS THEIR HABIT TO BREAK DOWN CERTAIN LOCALITIES AND TO BUILD UP OTHERS, TO BREAK DOWN CERTAIN MEN IN BUSINESS AND TO BUILD UP OTHERS. TO MONOPOLIZE CERTAIN BUSINESS THEMSELVES BY MEANS OF THE NUMEROUS CORPORATIONS WHICH THEY OWN AND CONTROL, AND ALL THIS IN SPITE OF THE LAW AND IN DEFIANCE OF THE LAW. THE RAILROADS TOOK ONE OF THOSE CHARTERS WHICH THEY GOT FROM THE LEGISLATURE, AND BY MEANS OF THAT THEY STRUCK A DEADLY BLOW AT ONE OF THE GREATEST INTERESTS OF THE STATE. THEIR SCHEME WAS CONTRARY TO LAW. But before the legal remedy could have been applied, the oil business would have lain prostrate at their feet had it not been prevented by an uprising of the people, by the threatenings of a mob, if you please, by threatening to destroy property, and by actually commencing to destroy the property of the railroad companies. And had the companies not cancelled the contract which Scott and Vanderbilt and others had entered into, I venture to say there would not have been one mile of railroad track left in the country of Anango. THE PEOPLE HAD COME TO THAT PITCH OF DESPERATION. UNLESS WE CAN GIVE THE PEOPLE A REMEDY FOR THIS EVIL, THEY WILL SOONER OR LATER TAKE THE REMEDY INTO THEIR OWN HANDS. NOTE 10. PAGE 137. AS THIS SUBJECT WILL BE MORE FULLY DISCUSSED HEREAFTER, IT NEED NOT FOR THE PRESENT BE TREATED IN DETAIL. SUFFICE IT TO SAY THAT THE SECRET CONTRACT BETWEEN THE SOUTH IMPROVEMENT COMPANY AND THE RAILWAYS WAS ostensibly CANCELED yet the freight discriminations continued just the same. Furthermore, the example set by this one monopoly was copied and improved upon by other corporations in all parts of the country, and the railways lent their aid unscrupulously to combinations of all kinds in restraint of trade and in discouragement of individual enterprise in eighteen eighty two the same mr dodd who had so bitterly denounced both the oil monopoly and the railways but who soon after accepted a large salary as general counsel to the standard oil company invented a form of trust agreement under which the standard oil company was reorganized in such a way as to provide that the stockholders of each of the companies composing it should assign their stock to a few trustees thus giving them a permanent and irrevocable power of attorney In return for the stock so assigned, the trustees distributed trust certificates to the stockholders of the separate companies. On these trust certificates the profits were divided. Note 11. Page 138. This trust agreement was finally pronounced illegal by the courts, but for several years it was a favorite form of organization with the great corporations, so that, in popular language, the word, trust, came to be applied to every combination of capital which had a monopolistic tendency. The long struggle between the trusts and their less powerful competitors brought out very clearly one great central fact. The backbone of monopoly was to be found in an abuse of the power which the railways of the country were exercising so oppressively. Unless in some way this power could be checked and regulated, the individual citizen was at the mercy of a comparatively few men whose command of money made them indifferent because superior to the ordinary processes of law. Popular sentiment then became so hostile to the railway interests as almost to justify the violence which had been shown in the strikes of 1886. It was during President Cleveland's first administration that Congress made a vigorous attempt to grapple with this subject The President's very long message of December sixth, 1886 did not touch directly on the connection of the railroads with social discontent, though some passages spoke of the relation of capital to labor and to the public interests. The events of the preceding summer, however, were fresh in the minds of all, and therefore early in the session a bill was reported in both houses intended to regulate and control the railways under that clause of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Paragraph 3, WHICH GIVES CONGRESS THE RIGHT TO REGULATE COMMERCE AMONG THE SEVERAL STATES OF THE UNION. NOTE 12. PAGE 139. THIS WAS NOT THE FIRST TIME THAT SUCH AN ATTEMPT HAD BEEN MADE. TEN YEARS EARLIER, A FLOOD OF PETITIONS HAD POURED IN UPON CONGRESS, TOGETHER WITH copies OF RESOLUTIONS PASSED BY PUBLIC MEETINGS, CHAMBERS OF COMMERCE, AND BOARDS OF TRADE. On May 16, 1876, Mr. Hopkins of Pennsylvania had asked unanimous consent of the House to introduce a resolution providing for a committee to investigate the charges against the railroads and to report a bill for the regulation of interstate commerce. Immediately, Mr. Henry B. Payne of Ohio rose and made objection, an objection which he refused to withdraw at the request of other members. Mr. Payne subsequently went to Mr. Hopkins and explained that his objection was based upon considerations of economy. A special committee would be too great an expense, he said. He begged Mr. Hopkins to reintroduce his resolution and asked that it be referred to the Committee on Commerce. This was done. When the Committee on Commerce met to consider it, a representative of the Standard Oil Company, Mr. J. N. Camden, took his seat beside the chairman, whispering suggestions in his ear and practically presiding. The Treasurer of the Standard Oil Company, Mr. O. H. Payne, and Mr. Cassett, the Vice-President of the Pennsylvania Railroad, were summoned to testify. Both of them refused to answer questions. The Committee adjourned, ostensibly to consider means for compelling these witnesses to answer. It never again took up the subject. It never recalled the witnesses. It never made any report. When Mr. Hopkins afterwards asked to see the record of the testimony that had been taken, he found that it had been stolen. The bill, which was now reported by a conference committee, was much more stringent than either the Senate bill or the Reagan substitute of the preceding session, It provided for the appointment of a commission of five members, to whom authority was given to inspect the books and other papers of all railways engaged in interstate commerce, and to summon witnesses and compel them to answer any questions relating to the railway management. It forbade discrimination in rates and also the pooling of freight revenues by competing railways, or the division of such revenues between them. It forbade also a greater charge for a short haul than for a long haul, over the same line and in the same direction. The Commission might appeal to the United States courts to enforce its mandates, either by injunction or by attachment, and the courts might impose a penalty of $500 for each offence and a fine of $500 per day during such time as an offending railroad remained in contumacy. This bill was opposed by railway attorneys both outside and inside of Congress. No one ventured frankly to defend the past conduct of the railways, but a vast amount of concern was expressed lest the proposed act might be unconstitutional. Congress, however, did not dare to reject the measure. The problem of the trusts had already become a leading political issue so that both parties were anxious to make a satisfactory record a conference committee reported the bill to the Senate on December fifteenth eighteen eighty six, and it was passed by a vote of forty three to fifteen, fourteen senators being absent or not voting It was reported to the House, and was passed January twenty one eighteen eighty seven, by a vote of two hundred nineteen to forty one, fifty eight members being absent or not voting The Interstate Commerce Act became law on February fourth, on which day it was signed by President Cleveland. AS WILL APPEAR LATER, THIS LAW DID NOT BY ANY MEANS ATTAIN THE OBJECT SOUGHT BY ITS FRAMERS. NOTE 13, PAGE 141. IT ESTABLISHED, HOWEVER, AN IMPORTANT PRECEDENT AND MARKED A LONG STEP FORWARD IN THE DIRECTION OF A COMPLETE NATIONAL CONTROL OF RAILWAY MANAGEMENT. THE PRESIDENT APPOINTED TO MEMBERSHIP IN THE FIRST COMMISSION, THOMAS M. COOLEY OF MICHIGAN, A VERY eminent JURIST, WITH WILLIAM R. MORRISON OF ILLINOIS, AUGUST SCHOONMAKER OF NEW YORK, Aldous F. Wheeler of Vermont, and Walter A. Bragg of Alabama. This session of Congress was unusually fruitful in other salutary legislation. Very important was the Electoral Count Act, which definitely ended the possibility of such a dispute as that which followed upon the Hayes-Tilden Contest of 1876-77. By the bill which now became law, February 3, 1887, each state must, through its own tribunals, determine the result of a disputed election. Only when it fails to do so does Congress have jurisdiction, and even then no electoral vote shall be rejected except by the concurrent vote of both houses. In the case of a disagreement between the Senate and the House, the votes of the electors whose appointment shall have been certified by the executive of the state under the seal thereof shall be counted. A stringent anti-polygamy act was also passed, making polygamy a criminal offence. It became law without the President's signature. Other non-partisan measures which were passed provided for the withdrawal of the trade dollar from circulation, for the extension of the free delivery system of the post office department, for the reference of private claims to a court of claims, and for the granting of land and severalty to the Indians. Finally, the Tenure of Office Act, with which the Senate had attempted, as already told, to hamper the President's freedom in making removals from office, was repealed. The repealing bill was introduced in the Senate by a Republican, Mr. Hoare of Massachusetts. He very shrewdly perceived that in the contest between the Senate and President Cleveland, popular sympathy had been with the President. The people, both Republicans and Democrats, expected that the political control of the most important offices would be changed when a new party came into power. Note 14, page 142. Senator Horr's action irritated many of his Republican colleagues, especially Senator John Sherman, and only three of them voted with him. But with the solid support of the Democratic senators, the repeal was carried, as it was also in the House and thus was blotted out a law which, as the President observed, had properly fallen into innocuous desuetude. Note 15, page 143. During this session Mr. Cleveland continued to veto private pension bills, accompanying his vetoes as before with caustic words. Had he done nothing more in this direction, he would have continued to receive from the country at large more gratitude than criticism. But on February eleventh, 1887, he returned without his approval a bill known as the Dependent Pension Bill, which granted a pension of twelve dollars monthly to every honorably discharged veteran of the war who had served three months and who was dependent upon his own labor or upon others for his support. It gave a like relief to the dependent parents of all deceased veterans. This was, in effect, a general service pension, and the President vetoed it saying in his message, among other things, I cannot but remember that the soldiers of our civil war, in their pay and bounty, received such compensation for military service as has never been received by soldiers before, since mankind first went to war. That never before on behalf of any soldiery have so many and such generous laws been passed to relieve against the incidents of war and that never before in the history of the country has it been proposed to render government aid toward the support of any of its soldiers, based alone upon a military service so recent and where age and circumstances appeared so little to demand such aid. The veto of the Dependent Pension Bill, and the terms which the President had employed in expressing his disapproval, brought upon him the loudly-voiced enmity of the Grand Army of the Republic, This organization, established in 1868, was composed of veterans of the Civil War, and in 1887 it had a membership of more than 400,000 persons. Ostensibly non-political, it had always taken a keen interest in pension legislation, and the fear of its influence had been very powerful, alike with Congress and with the officials of the Pension Bureau. For, directly and indirectly, the veterans were believed to control not less than a million votes. The Grand Army men were now unrestrained in their abuse of the President. They called him an enemy of veterans and a friend of the Confederacy, and they asserted that his action on the pension bill had been taken to please his supporters, the rebel brigadiers. Their wrath was not allayed by the comments which were published in the newspapers that defended Mr. Cleveland's veto. These journals pointed to the long list of pension frauds in the past, the extravagance of the Pension Bureau, and the tricks of the attorneys who made a specialty of pushing shady pension claims. It did not soothe the anger of the members of the Grand Army to be characterized as bloodsuckers, coffee boilers, pension leeches, and bums. A very bitter feeling was engendered, and was still intense when President Cleveland perpetrated a colossal blunder. There were stored in the custody of the War Department a number of Union flags captured by the Confederates during the Civil War and afterward recaptured by the Northern troops, and also a number of Confederate flags taken by the Union armies. On April thirtieth, after Congress had adjourned, Adjutant General R.C. Drum addressed a letter to the Secretary of War suggesting that all these flags, Union and Confederate alike, be returned to the respective states in which the regiments bearing the flags had been organized. Secretary Endicott submitted this letter to the President, and it was approved by him, May 26, whereupon the Adjutant General drafted letters to the Governors of the different States offering to return the flags in the name of the President. No sooner had this action become known than a cry of indignation arose throughout the North and West. The Rebel Flag Order, as it was called, was denounced in the most violent language and by men of every shade of political belief. Naturally, the Union veterans were the most deeply moved. Scores of grand army posts met and passed indignant resolutions. General Sherman, in a letter, said, I know Drum. He has no sympathy with the army which fought. He was a non-combatant. He never captured a flag and values it only at its commercial value. He did not think of the blood and torture of battle, nor can Endicott, the Secretary of War, or Mr. Cleveland. Note 16. Page 145. Others pointed out that the President had exceeded his authority in approving such an order. These flags, they said, were the property of the nation, and could not be disposed of in any way except by the authority of Congress. Looking into the matter more carefully, Mr. Cleveland found that such was indeed the case, and so he was obliged to take the humiliating step of publishing an executive order, June 16th, admitting his mistake and annulling the action of the Adjutant General. Note 17, page 145. This did not end the affair, however. The President had been invited by Mayor Francis of St. Louis to be present at the annual encampment of the Grand Army of the Republic to be held in that city in July. He had accepted the invitation, but after the issuance of the rebel flag order, he began to receive threatening letters from all parts of the country. It was declared in them, and it was generally believed, that should he attend he would be publicly insulted. Facts seemed to bear out these assertions. A number of Grand Army Posts held a meeting in the city of Wheeling, West Virginia. A street parade was one of the features of this meeting, and various banners had been suspended over the line of march. One of them bore the words, God bless our President, Commander-in-Chief of our Army and Navy. Nearly all the posts halted when they reached this banner. Then, refusing to pass beneath it, they folded and reversed their flags and marched around it through the gutters. Soon afterwards the President addressed a letter to Mayor Francis, July 4th, revoking his acceptance of the invitation to St. Louis and saying, The threats of personal violence, which scores of misguided, unbalanced men under the stimulation of excited feeling have made, are not considered. Rather than abandon my visit to the West and disappoint your citizens, I might, if I alone were concerned, submit to the insults to which it is quite openly asserted, I should be helplessly subjected if present at the encampment but I should bear with me there the people's highest office, the dignity of which I must protect. Note 18, page 146. End of chapter 4, part 1.